Hey everyone, welcome back. And before we launch into this new episode of the Falconry Chronicles podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about this new network that the podcast is a part of now being the Extreme Performance Outdoor Network. And it's a media network that was created by Houndsman XP. And they wanted to, of course, showcase Houndsman, but also they wanted to continue to incorporate other types of outdoor and hunting podcasts into the overall network and and just kind of feature different unique needs and goals that the outdoor and hunting community as a whole faces and it became apparent to me pretty quickly after talking to these guys how passionate they were about the overall mission of preserving hunting and and hunters rights and things of that nature that affects of course falconers as well so i mean i really wanted to become part of a network that had a mission that was of course bigger than ourselves in a lot of different ways and um, you know I'm really happy to be collaborating with these guys now and they're uh, really like I said a passionate group of guys and really work hard to you know kind of take control of the hunting narrative in a positive way so I'm happy to be part of this new network and as of March 1st you should be able to listen to all of the podcasts that are a part of the network on the main network feed, which you can search out at Extreme Performance Outdoors Network. Extreme is with an X at the beginning. And you can not only listen to the Falconry Chronicles podcast on that feed, but all the other shows as well, which I would highly recommend because there's a lot of good stuff that these guys have to offer. Please give them a chance if you haven't already. So anyway... Just wanted to let you all know more of the reasoning and logic behind joining a a bigger network. And I think it's only going to mean positive things for everyone involved. And I'm really happy to be a part of it. And now that I've said my piece and informed you all of all that stuff, on to the show. Here we go with the next episode of the Falconry Chronicles podcast. This Cooper's Hawk came out, and this Merlin just started bombing that Cooper's Hawk. It just kept bombing it, bombing it, bombing it. And it forced it actually into, there was a building with a fence, a, 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 you know, a, pheasant, a fence keeping the pheasants in, an enclosure. And it that Cooper's Hawk, it bombed that Cooper's Hawk right into the corner to the point where I went over and picked up the Cooper's Hawk. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks again for joining me for another great episode of the Falconry Chronicles podcast. And I've been really excited to bring this episode out to you all. This episode features uh, Ken Felix. And uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Ken, the reason why I was excited to bring this episode to you all is because Ken was one of the guys, or last few guys, I should say, remaining that were like true second generation Falconers and that they learned from some of the original falconers that were practicing falconry first in our country so that being said there's not many guys like him that are left in our falconry community at this point and i've just been really excited to release this episode for you all and special thanks again to seth roy for helping to make this episode happen and uh, like i said that being said i'm going to go ahead and turn things over to this episode now with ken felix so enjoy here we go Well, I appreciate you taking the time, Ken. It's really good to meet you. I'm I'm glad that Seth reached back out to me and and thought of including you in in all this. I 
I hear that you're a you're a guy that's kind of been around a minute and has seen a lot of uh, a lot of things in in falconry. And um, you know, you're also from a part of our country that is, like you were saying before, kind of known as is the original, I guess, hub of falconry. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's 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 good to meet you, and I'm really excited to to talk to you more in this conversation and and uh, pick your brain a little bit. Go ahead, Al. There's, there's slim pickings in there, but I'll let you add it. <laughs> well, and if at any point, you know, you have anything that you want to add or interject or whatever, you feel free to jump in. All right. So. I just want to say one thing is that I feel that our generation, that is people who got into falconry in the mid-60s to the mid-80s, uh, and I was the one in the late 60s, um, uh, are the... Um, Benefit has been the biggest benefit uh, that uh, we came in at a time when there was all kinds of game everywhere, and but there was no information. There really wasn't. And so then NAFA came in and they started having some in the 60s, started having some information. And we were fortunate enough to be the first ones to have both many of rap many raptors available much game unbelievable amount of game available and finally some communication between falconers yeah and a lot of the guys that i talk to that are from you know, I've, I've talked to at least a handful that have kind of started before there were rules and regs you know kind of same from the same era and all of that and um they, there's a, there's always kind of this resounding um, I guess common denominator between all of all of you guys, it seems, in that basically, yeah, it's it was a struggle getting into it, but at the same time, it was easier to kind of work out and learn um, you know, from the mistakes and and different things and stuff, mainly because there was just so much more land to hunt and so much more game to try and, you know, but prey base to try and and hunt on. Right. And communication. That's the big thing that happened in the mid 60s on. Before that, they were flying by the seat of their pants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as, I mean, around that era, I mean, sure, there were, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that some of the long distance calls and things like that could get, could get kind of pricey if you were communicating with people across the country. But I'm sure that exchanging ideas and thoughts and stuff like that via snail mail was probably a little inconvenient, though, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, as far as, is there anything in particular that, you know, from whenever you got your start, I mean, what was it exactly that, that you felt was, I guess, expounding on those things a little bit? I mean, what was, what was the hardest thing for you getting into all this? Well, I had no trouble getting into it. The trouble, well, I got my first bird when I was 12. Uh, my uncle climbed a tree and gave me a baby red-shouldered hawk because uh, I had been bugging him about the hawks for probably a couple of years. And anyhow, and I, I killed it. Uh, I didn't, it was a baby. I didn't feed it properly. It died. Um, my dad was encouraging. He built, we built a muse outdoors, maybe not the outdoor weathering area and news and anyhow and probably that's the reason when i felt so bad that that bird died that that's probably the reason one of the reasons one of the main reasons i became a veterinarian really we're going to happen again what age did you say you were again at that point I was 12 
Okay. Yeah, there was no rules or regulations then. Zero. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, it's, there's a, a lot of guys that kind of have a similar experience to that. You know, it's like, you know, you, you, there, there's really wasn't too much in the ways of, of books or any kind of, you know, just reference material on how to take care of, of something like that. So. Right. It was 1959. So yeah. 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 Well, did you, whenever you were a kid, like, did you manage to find anything that was somewhat of a, of a help to you in, in that regard or? Nothing that was helpful. I mean, I, I had the encyclopedia and I looked it up, but there was nothing. There was no other falconers that I knew of to talk to. I lived in semi-rural, maybe rural northwestern Pennsylvania. There was no other falconers. There was nobody. And so... But I went to veterinary school in 1968, and there was a big hiatus there between 60 and 68 when I was in high school and college. And and um, and uh, you don't do anything in, with falconry when you're in high school and college if you have no no money and no information. <laughs> so, yeah. but anyhow, but when I got to veterinary school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, I met um, some falconers, and they took me under their my, their wing and it was easy hmm. okay so did you like whenever you were still a, a kid though i mean even before you got into high school did you try to do anything else with with any other birds or anything in that in that kind of gap there or no what happened was when i got this bird this uh, i was 12 years old and i called the local game protector for information about falconry and he said, well, you got to get a bird. And I said, well, I have a bird. He said, do you know what it is? And I said, yeah, it's a red-shouldered hawk. He says, well, those are protected. You can't have one. And you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do anything. So I just dropped it then and there. I, I, I you know, and that was it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even think about it. I loved falcons and hawks all my life as a kid. I mean, I was just enamored with them um, and hunting too and uh, predators let's put it that way and uh, and then when I met uh, the falconers in in Philadelphia Corny McFadden and Bill McBride and those guys Joe Harmer Lou Oist uh, then the whole world opened up to me uh, Bob Barry yeah cool yeah now and so I mean going through vet school and, and everything I mean, was there still, I'm, I'm assuming there was probably still a, a strong desire during that time, you know, to, to get into it, right? You never lost uh, any kind of motivation or anything like that or? Well, no, no. Once, once I met those guys, uh, they told me about two very famous people in the world of falconry. One was Dr. Robert Stabler, who um, was the head of parasitology at the University of Pennsylvania Veterinary School and who unfortunately left there the year before I started, but I corresponded with him over snail mail, and uh, and he was the one who discovered that uh, Trichomonas gallinae, the parasite that caused frowns in falcons and hawks, and how to cure it. And so that saved the lives of thousands and thousands, maybe millions of birds of prey. And then secondly, there was another gentleman who was a student at the veterinary school, but left, but graduated a year or two before me, named Scotty Ward, F. Prescott Ward. And he's the gentleman that did the research 
by trapping peregrines on the um, outer banks and finding uh, and uh, going to their nests and so forth and finding well he didn't find out about the he found out about the eggshell sickness at the peregrine iris but that was caused by ddt and so he was the one who actually proved that and and there there's one that saved millions and millions of falcons mm. oh, Hmm. So I never did meet either of them personally, but I corresponded with both of them frequently. And I'm, I just proud to say I, I knew them somehow. Yeah, no, it sounds like you, uh, kind of lucked into that, that kind of, I guess you could even call it kind of like a treasure trove of knowledge in a way. Yes, uh, I did. I just stepped into it and it hit me in the face. <laughs> well, and whenever you were in vet school, did you always, know that you were wanting to kind of um like did, did you specialize more in the avian side of things or did you no i was going to be a general practitioner but you had to do a senior laboratory laboratory uh project and so um uh what i did for mine was there was a problem with captive birds of prey having thiamine deficiency and so i what i did was i trapped 16 raptors um uh eight kestrels and eight red tails and tested all of them wild birds and tested them all for thiamine deficiency and none of them had it and so that just proved that it was the diet that that captive bred birds were getting so so anyhow but everybody knew it was a b vitamin deficiency but i just happened to prove that it doesn't occur in the wild at least in the small 16 bird sample that i had Huh. But it was it was fun, and it was a great project, and I got a good grade for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just kind of uh, out of curiosity, then with that, it, whenever you did get into uh, falconry a little bit more, you know, hot and heavy later on, I mean, did that study and some other things that you learned during? I mean, I don't see how it couldn't, but I mean, did did that and other things that you learned during your your vet school um, kind of tenure change what you decided to? I don't know, regulate your raptors on as far as diet and, you know, um, any kind of supplemental vitamins or anything or. Absolutely. Sure absolutely. It did. And the main thing it did, and you're going to laugh at this, but the main thing it did was said that I am never going to fly. And I, I, to this day, I've never flown a goshawk and I've never flown a deer falcon. I've flown plenty, flown plenty of other birds, but neither of those species. And the reason is because in those days, wild goshawks and wild deer falcons all died of aspergillosis and i was not going to have another bird die on me after that after that red shoulder baby died so i have never flown a goshawk or a deer falcon and never will <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's I know, yeah yeah go ahead go ahead I, I know that's not true today with the captive breeding and medical medicine modern medicine everything but I'm, it still scares me to death <laughs> <laughs> that's funny though that in a way well it's not funny but it's it's kind of um i don't know it, it's interesting that even into your later a little bit older years and after you become a vet and everything like the ptsd from the dead red shoulder is, is still something that, that was impacting you that much sure. the, you know, it, it, it's probably the reason I became a veterinarian. It hit me that hard. Man, that's well, yeah. I mean, and I, as, as horrible as it is to say, I mean, and when it comes to different experiences, research and things, I mean, sometimes it takes experiences like that to kind of 
shift some people's paths for the better. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting how many discoveries and, and, um, and just medicine in general have kind of occurred because, you know, of, of the deaths of certain animals and people and stuff. It's, 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 I mean, I think if people really understood (laughs) how much of our, of our medical base was, was the foundation of it was based on a lot of that. I think people would be really astounded. Yeah. And and the other thing is that a few years before I got that red shoulder, um, we had horses and ponies when I was a kid and, and uh, I had a pony having trouble having a foal. And my grandpa came over, he was a farmer. He couldn't get that foal out. And my dad was there and he couldn't get that foal out. And they were my two most impressive people in the world, the people I admired most, and they couldn't do it. And they had a guy come over and he got that foal out. And I said to dad, I said, who's, who's that? He said, he was a veterinarian. I said, I mean, I was probably about eight, nine years old, maybe. And I said, I don't even know what a veterinarian is. He said, (laughs) that's an animal doctor. I said, there's a doctor. And I saw him, he probably gave him two bucks. And I said, you mean he gets paid for taking care of animals? I said, yep. So that impressed me too. So then when the bird died, that was the logical next step. And and I can say this with honest truth. I went to a prep school for high school. And in the yearbook, they ask you what you're going to do after graduation. And and uh, not one of the students in my class said they were going to be insurance men, but about half of them are. And, and, uh, and I was the one of the only ones, I think uh, myself and a lawyer, were the only ones who predicted at senior high school what they were going to be when they really went into adult life. Well, I mean, that's good. I mean, there's there's always at least a handful out of every class, it seems yeah. like, that, that yeah. to whatever capacity are so focused, even at a young age, that they know what they're going to do later on. But mm-hmm. the rest of them just kind of seems like they meander through life a little bit, you know. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, everybody finds their own paths. And, I mean, it sounds like it's a good thing that you, you know, have found yours. I mean, I, I'm always happy for people that, that are yeah. able to, to, to find – kind of that purpose early on. Yep. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. And, and so as far as just kind of going back to your early days in falconry, then, I mean, whenever you, you stumbled into this kind of treasure trove of, of guys, as far as, you know, to learn from and stuff, yeah. but just kind of start going into a little bit of detail on what, you know, some of your early learning experiences were like from some of these guys and, and was it like a more of a one-on-one type of deal or did they all have some degree of influence on you? They all did. They all did. There were certainly some individuals who are more influential, but I've got to tell you that back in those days, and I'm talking in the late sixties in Pennsylvania, um, falconry was basically, uh, primarily people going out with falcons and throwing them bad game. And that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And so I used to go with the group. There was a whole group of people that went, and I won't name any names, but that's what was going on. And this minion, one of the guys my age, young young guy in his, in his 20s, came up to me and said, do you want to see some real falconry? And his name was Joe Seibel. And uh, I said, what do you mean? just come with me and he had a red tail and we went to the dump and we caught rats at the dump (laughs) (laughs) i said this is really cool this is actually wild 
operate. So then, of course, then he took me to other places when we caught rabbits too, and with the same red tail. And so uh, that was, uh, that's the first thing that really changed in falconry because of the young guys like Joe Seibel and, uh, and uh, Joe Harmer and, and Bill McBride and those guys that were young, younger than the old guard, they changed falconry from bag game to actual hunting. Yeah. And I've, I've heard a lot about that, you know, back in those times, it was a lot more of, you know, flying and lure flying and, and some of the mm-hmm. aspect of those things. And it really wasn't until a little bit later that the actual, you know, the, the people started to really kind of figure out how to really actually hunt with their birds. Exactly. And yeah. And so, I mean, what was kind of the path like for you then? I mean, did you start off with a red tail? What, what I mean, how, how, how did, um, I mean, how did that kind of progress for you? Well, I, you know, Joe Seibel, the, this guy, he's the one who taught me how to trap and we'd go up to the Kittatinny Ridge you know, near Hawk Mountain. And, and um, that's how we trapped those birds for the project when I was a senior. And so after I graduated, I had time. I wasn't in school. I wasn't living in Philadelphia. And so I, uh, I got my falconry permit and uh and i met a great falconer in erie the only one that was there besides me his name was rod gerline and uh, he had a red tail at the time and uh uh rod and i went out and i trapped a red tail and and we uh we started hawking with our red tails mm-hmm. yeah and you know rabbits and squirrels and whatever we could catch so yeah i mean i'd always heard though that like as far as red tails go there was a a, a- period of time there where they kind of weren't really anywhere near the known commodity that they are now. And, you know, I mean, I heard it was kind of a situation where, you know, people weren't really using or didn't really understand their value fully yet. And I mean, so was it around a a little bit before you kind of got into falconry then that they started being kind of known or was it already kind of a, a, a known thing, but people just weren't really using them yet? Well, what happened was that the young guys getting in, the older people didn't tell them where the goshawk nests were, didn't help them trap, didn't um, uh, and and uh, didn't allow them to take peregrines and uh, and so they only the skabuji guys, the minions, had red tails, and the upper echelon, if you'll have it, looked down upon them. And but those were the guys that were having fun and killing stuff, mm-hmm. you know. So I they were known, but they were just considered. Yeah, falconry is goshawks and peregrines. Traditionally, that's what falconry was in Europe mm-hmm. and and here. Mm-hmm. That's it. Gotcha. Yeah. So. So as far as these other guys that started using some of these other, you know, types of raptors, then, I mean, were there any other guys that were outside of your circle that were teaching them also, or was it all pretty much the same guys? Um, Because, I mean, I know know there were other guys that were kind of learning on their own and stuff too, but. Yeah, um, Harris Hawks um, actually came in about that time too, early on, earlier than most people realize. And, um, and people saw, then, then we, when clubs started forming, state falconry clubs at the meets, uh, the peregrines, 
and of course that was after the you know 72 when they were no longer uh, or 76 or whatever it was when they were on the endangered species list and everything uh peregrines weren't available goshawks were hard to find uh the ones that were passage birds died of aspergillosis and so uh so then well red tails and harris hawks took off hmm. and cooper's hawks okay yeah i i had always kind of wondered about how that natural progression went i mean you hear a bunch of people talk about it but if falconry was viewed mainly as peregrines and and a couple of these other types of birds and, and people were starting to kind of struggle obtaining those types of birds or couldn't obtain them right. i mean it's kind of a it seems a little ironic in a way that you know you were in an era where there was so many possibilities for for hawking you know with with so much more land so much more prey base and everything but then the types of birds that you were able to fly them were kind of starting to get taken away from you so i mean like i, I can understand then why people even if they were a little bit more reticent or didn't want to kind of accept some of these other raptor species were kind of forced to be you know a little bit you know accepting in a way because that's all you could really do after a certain amount of time right right and and it was fun and it was actual if you look at the, if you look at the definition of falconry which is the taking of wild quarry its natural state and habitat by means of a trained raptor flying bag game isn't falconry no it's not and so when we started forming clubs i was going to say we'd have meets and those guys that just flew bad game with their falcons uh nobody gravitated towards them they gravitated towards the guys that were out actually practicing falconry so as far as were, were you involved then in in any of the um like the formation of some of the early clubs and stuff like that where you were at or oh yeah i was uh, what happened joe seibel that that friend of mine who i mentioned earlier he was an obscure falconer nobody knew him outside of philadelphia and he sent out a letter to every licensed falconer asking them to attend a meet in burn cabins pa which is in the middle of nowhere in the mountains and see about forming a club because the federal rings were going to come out and we needed somebody to act as a unified voice to the pennsylvania game commission to adopt the federal regs 60 of us showed up actually which was big i mean pennsylvania you'd be surprised i think california is the only state club that has more members than the pennsylvania club hmm. Uh, Great Lakes involves more than one state. But anyhow, uh, so we met in 76. We formed the club that year. And I was elected the first president. And uh, we had our first meeting January 77. Hmm. So and then it just took off from there. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I um, always respect people who are who are willing to take you know especially some of those um like the extra lumps that are involved with uh some of the formation with that kind of stuff i mean i've i i'm involved in a limited capacity with my state club mm -hmm. and um you know i see a lot of i've seen a lot of the work that goes into that kind of stuff and i of course have lots of friends that have helped you know with nafa and, and stuff like that and i have people that don't do those types of i don't know or don't offer to have those types of volunteer positions and help carry the torch don't i don't think really fully understand how much work goes into all that 
Well, that's true, and it's. But the people who do understand it really appreciate it. They really do, and um, and and you know, in most clubs of any kind, ninety percent of the work is done by five percent of the people, and and um, um, I. I Probably the reason I got elected president is that nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I know that's what happened to me when I was elected president of NAFA. They, they, you know, nobody else wanted that job. And I have a saying that I never had an enemy in the world until I became the president of NAFA. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's fitting. That's yeah. Fitting. Yeah, yeah, we're um we're an interesting bunch, you know that's for sure. That's there's there's no doubt about it as far as that goes. It's uh, yeah, every every Falconer's got a hundred opinions about a hundred different things, and so. they're all individuals and very yeah. very staunch in their beliefs. And you know, I mean, it's not a culture religion, but it's closing in on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they there's there's uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a good way of, of putting it, probably. Yeah, yeah, we we can be a little fanatical when it comes to certain things. That's for sure. Yeah. And fanaticism is generally bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're also very passionate, and you know, that's that's sometimes that's just what happens when you have a bunch of passionate individuals that you know you get involved in one little niche thing and, and all of a sudden, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you, it is what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm happy though, that you took on those, those roles and were, were, um, willing to be the, the proud veteran, so to speak, you know, that, uh, in that, in that situation. Well, it had to be done. It had to be done. Well, yeah, sure. And so, and so, uh, people don't realize the benefits that, these state and, and national and international clubs are for falconry. They, mm -hmm. Most most falconers just assume it just happened that they, you know, got all kinds of uh, regulations and so forth that made falconry attainable, you know, or even legal. Well, and and that's I mean, we as human beings, I think, are so kind of uh, what have you done for me lately in a lot of ways, you know, and very short sighted. And it's hard for us. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, our, our country itself is just so young compared to so, you know, so many other countries in the world. And and um, a lot of the things that, you know, it seems like, you know, there's a lot of people that just kind of brush off a lot of things that didn't even happen 100 years ago. You know, I mean, it's and it's like not necessarily brush off, but don't fully understand the gravity of some things that that happened not that long ago. Yeah, but our country is not only new, but in the early days, every country other than every country was a uh, uh, a monoculture, and the United States is the last thing from a monoculture. Right. And so that's that's. I mean, that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as as it pertains to to kind of how things evolved with with falconry and and. Um, you know how everything, <laughs> you know, is kind of developed in our country with with it, it all. It's all kind of just um, I don't know. We're a melting pot anyway, and you know we're there's so many different, like you said, types of personalities and everything that that are involved in all this. That I mean, there's always bound to be some degree of of a little bit of conflict. 
But like you said, I mean, that's why these organizations were formed, though, is to be the voice of the majority, not necessarily the minority, you know, in a lot of those things. So, you know, I mean, as far as, you know, uh, some of the early guys that you had experiences with, though, getting into falconry, I mean, were did they help out with a lot of the formation of this stuff also or? Well, yeah, um, uh, the, the two people here in Pennsylvania that were the most involved other than me was uh, uh, three, actually. Bill McBride, I don't know if you've heard that name before. He, he's passed on now. But he was, uh, he, he was probably 10 years older than me, and he passed away two or three years ago, and I miss him dearly. But he was a big, big influence both on me and the club because he was elected vice president at that time. And the other falconer who I had here in northwestern Pennsylvania with me, Rod Gerlang, he became the uh, the uh, western director. We state was divided west, central, and eastern director, and he was a western director. And then a the guy in the east named Mark Plotter uh, became really involved. So those are the those are the three local people who were really involved in the formation and starting and 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 progress of the club. Yeah. Gotcha. So in the midst of all of this, then, how did some of the evolution in your personal falconry take place, kind of juggling all of this different stuff and then your veterinary practice and, and everything else? What what did you um, what kind of path did you end up taking with some of the different birds that you flew and stuff? Well, I um, again, I believe that you fly the bird that you have game for, and uh, so I, of course, started off with red tails uh, and Harris hawks, and uh, because I live in the east here, and we do have rabbit, squirrels, and pheasants, but that's it. Uh, there really isn't anything else to fly here. There are well, sorry, there are ducks, but where I live, uh, right on on Lake Erie. There's ducks are in pretty big water. You don't go hawking on Lake Erie, okay? So, but anyhow, so but then um, I did fly in uh, Cooper's hawks, um, merlins, a lot of merlins, and because uh, we could find game for them. And I did have uh, uh, somebody loaned uh, uh, loaned me a peregrine, and so I did do some duck hawking out west with that for a while, and and then I uh, I had a New Zealand falcon, which was a great experience. And uh, I flew her, and she was the most versatile bird I've ever had. Uh, she caught everything from meadow voles to jackrabbits to pheasants, ducks, quail, everything, woodcock, everything. She was just amazing. And uh, I gave her to a when when somebody told me that she was too valuable to fly. I gave her to a breeder in uh, British Columbia a guy I met at the Canadian National Falconry Meet, and he uh, hybridized her with your falcon semen and and sold her to the Arabs, and they loved those offspring because they would catch Izubaro. Because I don't know if you know about New Zealand falcons, but they are a cross between a goshawk and a deer falcon is what they are. Real long tail, real short wings, but falcon, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they were really, she was really amazing. If I, if I could ever get another one, I would. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard some about them, but there's not very many people that you hear about having a lot of necessarily like tons of success with them. There's a few yeah. here and there, but they're definitely not a, a falcon that you would think about taking jackrabbits or something, though. That's, well, young jackrabbits. Okay? <laughs> yeah. He took bunnies better, better than any Harris hawk or red tail, but she did catch some young jacks, too. 
And, uh, uh, but anyhow, uh, you're right. I talked to the peregrine. What happened? I, I don't know. I want to keep talking about New Zealand falcons, but, but, um, the, the, uh, peregrine find had doled out some, some, uh, New Zealand babies they got from Nick Foss, Fox and raised. And uniformly, nobody had any success with them. And I some good falconers, uh, you know, I mean, uh, really good falconers who I admire. And, um, and uh, anyhow, I, uh, uh, I saw one at a Pennsylvania meet, a guy, a breeder brought one up and I said, God, that thing looks like it ought to be able to kill something, it's, you know, just built for killing stuff. And so I, uh, I called Willard Heck down at the pea fund. I said, do you have any New Zealand falcons? He says, yeah, I got one. It's a baby female. I said, I, said, I want it. He said, you what? I said, yeah, I want it. <laughs> so, so he expertly raised it till it was about 21 days. I flew out there and got the falcon and came home and she was phenomenal. And I just think it was this particular bird or they just, I don't know. I don't know, but anybody who's seen her fly will tell you she was a phenomenal bird. Yeah. And were you mainly just doing a straight pursuit style with it then, or were you doing? Oh, yeah. yeah, it was mostly off the fist to begin with. Um, but every once in a while, she'd take off the fist to fly a snipe, and the snipe would outfly her. And then she'd sort of make low, wide, waiting on circles. And the dog would flush another snipe, and she would chase it. But guess what? She never caught a snipe. They were so hard. And after about two weeks of doing that, she just gave up flying them. And I don't blame her. <laughs> yeah, and after I can understand that. I mean, after seeing you know some snipe hawking myself, you know, with with some other guys, you know, with Merlins, yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, Mer or, or even Tearsel peregrines, and oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of just a, a short pitch or a small. Uh, uh, lower pitch, you know, right, right above and stuff. Yeah, I mean, and 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 it was hard enough for them to even catch them in the perfect scenarios with that setup. Let alone straight off the off the fist yeah, pursuit. Exactly. Yeah. No, they're tough. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, that's fascinating, though. I mean, that I I could probably talk about this for a while, just simply yeah. because you know you don't you don't hear about you know some of these other species that are non-native, you know, or termed exotic or however you want to you know put it or whatever. You know, there's not a lot of guys that you hear about flying some of these different species that, that have ever had tons of, of success with them. So whenever you hear about it, you got to you got to hear, you know, a little bit more than just uh, the, <laughs> the the basic, uh, you know, the basic. Oh, well, I flew one, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had her for four. I interviewed her four times and she started laying eggs. And that's why they said she was too valuable to fly. So, yeah. So, uh, one other interesting thing about this bird, and nobody believes me, but it's absolutely true. She never ate anything she killed. She would just cash it. Um, that's it. And uh, uh, she was a hard imprint, obviously. And um, and uh, even even in the in a summer, I'd keep her in a free muse outside, and you'd see chipmunks piled up in the corner <laughs> but if i put a dead quail in there she'd eat it immediately <laughs> <laughs> well i mean did you were you brave enough to to save any of the stuff that she cashed that she found later or did you just end up no no it? i didn't no i didn't need, oh i did oh i did if if um usually when i when i intentionally catch something i saved all that sure you know that she would yeah so 
Yeah, but, but, but not yeah, I don't know how long it had been in the muse before I found it. You know, I just throw food to them in the summer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome though. I mean, that's cool though that she had that experience and and it seems like sometimes people just Yes, the falconer makes the bird and all that, but at the same time, I just think that there's some I don't know if you want to call it luck destiny or whatever, but some people just end up with these birds that I know there's there's kind of that saying that every falconer ends up with like at least one bird that's like that special I don't know, just that right. special pairing, you know, I mean. Well, yeah, well my my belief is that and I consider myself an at or slightly below average falconer of the falconers I really know well. There's mm -hmm. most of the falcons I hang around with are better falconers than I am, that's for sure, okay? Mm -hmm. But um but anyhow, uh I believe that um, there are some guys that just have what I call it. Uh, that is, they just get it. They understand the mind of a raptor and they are calm and they are just, they can get the very best. Their birds are always feather perfect, completely obedient and killing machines. But every once in a while, You'll get one that I don't care what you do. The damn thing's untrainable. I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think there's that. There's a lot of <laughs> a lot of people that will agree for sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and then there's some guys that'll say, "Well, no birds untrainable," and this, that, yeah. and the other. And I'm like, "Well, you know, teach their own." Yeah, <laughs> there's no point in, in debating yeah. some of those things. But yeah, I don't. Yeah. I just don't have enough birds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's that too there's that too but uh well no that's cool i mean that's it sounds like you had a, a pretty cool introductory i don't know kind of um i don't know what to say crash course but like uh, you kind of got a a nice introduction into falconry and lucked into a pretty cool situation then yeah yeah no the the philadelphia experience was phenomenal and it, it and it it and of course then i went to i graduated from veterinary school in 72 i went to my first nafa meet in 74 when i was a member of nafa and um and um and these old timers introduced me to the to the rest of the quote upper echelon of falconers in 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 the country and you know the the henry swains and the harry mcelroys and all these guys you know and and uh, it was it was just uh, it really helped me a lot yeah well and and so I, I now that you mentioned that it would be a good time to to i guess get some some good stories from you as far as just some of your overall experiences with some of these quote unquote you know other first generation guys and everything yeah, that, that yeah. you that, that you learned from and and had a chance to kind of you know intermingle with there for that for that period of time and i definitely want to hear about you know how some of these guys were because at like as you said i mean they're all they're all gone now you know i mean like for the yeah. most part they're they've passed no. and no, and course. we we can't hear the stories from from their mouths anymore but it'd be really cool to hear you know i mean from guys like yourself that that were fortunate enough to be able to to know them for a while you know what some of your experiences were and and get some of the stories maybe from second hand is better than no hand you know yeah. well the very first falconer i met i was a, a freshman or sophomore in veterinary school um, and I was happened to be working at an SPCA at the time, uh, after school. And, 
And anyhow, uh, a guy came in and brought a, a red tail in that had a that he had trapped that had a, a, a justice and everything on it. He, he, a captive bird that had gotten away from somebody and he trapped and brought it. And his name was Cornelius McFadden, Corny McFadden. And he was a bigger than life guy. <laughs> you can't, I don't know if you've heard stories about Corny, but he was, oh my God, no matter, no matter what it was, he could bully Buffalo or talk his way into or out of anything. He was just phenomenal. <laughs> and he had an entourage of lackeys who would wash his car and clean his muse and <laughs> and and uh give him pigeons and whatever you know he would just and uh, yeah so he would just his personality you had to love him but well no i take that back you either had to love him or hate him because uh some of the other upper echelon that was more his age if not my age but his age which was you know uh 20 years older than me, I guess, maybe he'd be, he died in 72. Um, uh, when, uh, when I was a senior in veterinary school and, um, anyhow, but Bob Stabler, who's one of the, the main guys, he had nothing good to say about Corny. And he said that, uh, Hal Webster would, uh, would deal, deal you the ace of spades, ace of hearts and, and Corny would deal you the nine of spades. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I heard also that, uh, Stabler was hiding a peregrine from Corny. Corny was over there having dinner and he says, oh, I went to that. Bob said, I went to that, uh, peregrine IRA and somebody had plucked it clean. So, oh man. Anyhow, the Kindersville Cliffs, they were called. There was an IRA there and that's where the local falconers got their peregrines back in the late 60s early 70s before they were endangered and everything and um and uh bob had taken one and had it in his basement and, uh corny corny said uh hey i want to go take a peregrine from that irie he says, yeah okay so well i'll take you there tomorrow morning so carney corny came over for dinner spent the night the next morning they went out then the irie was plucked there wasn't any birds in it well corny never knew that bob had to the only one that was left in that irie in his basement right below where corny spent the night sleeping in his guest <laughs> bedroom. <laughs> well, that, uh, that was a, lot, a lot of that stuff and it still goes on today you know <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean good luck getting guys to just outright tell you you know where a goshawk nest is for exactly. example yeah, yeah. and and you know, I mean, and some of the stuff is like, well, rightfully so. I mean, it's a lot of work locating nests and and stuff sometimes, and yeah. and um, you know, there's a lot of uh, grueling effort that goes into marching through like tons of forest and looking for sign and and narrowing down different, getting the leads to even where they might be in the first place, and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a lot just to ask somebody like, hey. Where's your goshawk nest? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, I get why someone yeah. might, you know, want to be a little secretive, but it's hilarious that, you know, is sharing basically the same room with, with, with one of these birds. It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just, uh, yeah. But that, that was corny. And like I said, we, we'd go in Philadelphia and in, in the middle of the night at the, uh, at the bridges that went over the streets with long nets catching pigeons and and the cops would stop and Corny said, oh, the mayor said we could do this. He says, a good friend of mine. And cops said, okay, go ahead. You know, he, he, Corny could, he could, 
and he was a huge man. He was big, about six five, Scotsman with a, probably weighed about two fifty, and <laughs> he was just impressive all the way around. So anyhow, and then and then uh, Jim Rice was there at that time too, and he was the exact opposite of Corny. He was the perfect gentleman, soft spoken, um, very very worldly, and very just just the nicest, sweetest man you'd ever want to meet and would never raise his voice about anything. And uh, yeah, so anyhow, they, they were polar opposites, but they'd all go out and fly their falcons at the at, at bag pheasants, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes there, yeah, it's without that kind of diversity in a hunting group, it would probably be pretty boring. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I can't I can't imagine what it would be like going out with other guys every weekend that I was exactly alike, you know, oh, or yeah. exactly oh. like, I mean, we all have our similarities, but but part of the reasons why we're, we're different is part of the reasons why it's so fun just to give each other crap so much all the time. Yeah, you, know? you are absolutely right. Absolutely right. Uh, love, hate relationships are wonderful. I think <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Well, what's what's uh what's another what's another one then i mean uh you you have um i mean i know that there's there's more guys than that than just that 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 you well that you, well you got to remember that back then i was i met corny in 68 or 69 i can't remember and he died of and all my time was spent in philadelphia then when i went back back home to northwestern pennsylvania which is 450 miles from Philadelphia. I mean, you couldn't be further from Philadelphia and still be in Pennsylvania and any other places. And um, and so it was just Rod Gerline and I. That's who it was until we formed the club. So I never had any any uh, connection with the old gang in, in Philadelphia until after we formed the club. And it turned out that um, uh, Jim Rice did join. Uh, Corny McFadden was dead. Bob Berry, who was another big, big uh, uh, long winger and well-respected and fantastic falconer and and breeder, uh, and uh, the first person I think to breed goshawks in in the United States. And anyhow, uh, he he never joined the club, so I didn't get to hang around with him. But his proteges did, and they became fast friends of mine. And so you have to talk to them about maybe I think uh, Seth may have given you Dan Smith's name too. And Dan was a protege of uh, of, uh, of Jim Rice, and he could tell you a million Jim Rice stories, but he spent his time, his whole childhood sitting on on Jim's porch saying, take me out, take me out, take me out. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, so, I mean, as far as other stories, then, like, I guess we can go back to your personal falconry then. And I, I do want to get a, a, at least one or two good stories of, um, you know, just some of the more memorable hunting experiences and flights. And, I mean, you've already talked about, of course, the New Zealand falcon and stuff. But, uh, but I mean, what were a couple of the more memorable birds or flights that you that you had, you know, in, in your experience? Okay, now... Again, I'm going to stretch my credibility here, but I have two witnesses. My, my, probably my favorite falconer Merlins by far. Okay. They're just so cool. And, um, anyhow, I had, I, I, I usually just 
catch them in the fall, fly them in, and let them go in the spring. That's what I normally do. But one was so good, just so good, that I intermuted her four times. And with this bird, I was out in New Mexico with uh, Mark Plotter, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, and a good falconer out there in New Mexico. Um, and his name is Pete Youngeman. Anyhow, we were flying out in the desert and uh my merlin took on after a white-winged dove and they fly a long ways and so it was out of telemetry range and this was way before gps stuff this was you know and i had a little micro transmitter about the size of your little fingernail on the thing and uh, a yagi antenna on a thing on an rb4 if you know what that is the rb4 yeah uh, yeah, trend, yeah. Uh, yeah so anyhow it was out of telemetry range so we started driving in about every half mile we said and pete said to me don't you have a uh, omnidirectional antenna for your truck and i said no so man if we had one of those we wouldn't have to stop every minute. We just drive around in circles, and when we got a signal, we could stop looking. We could start looking in the right direction. So, oh. he said, "I have one at home." He says, "But," and we tried and tried. And he said, "So, but let's go to my house, and um, and I'll give you my Yagi, and you can or my omnidirectional antenna, and you can have it, and hopefully you'll find her." So I said, "Okay." So we drove fifteen miles to now remember this bird had been intermuted three or four times um i uh, i drove 15 miles back to his house he gave me the omnidirectional i put it on top of the truck and just to see if it worked i turned on beep 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 i get a huge beep and that freaking merlin is sitting in a tree right <laughs> above my truck she followed that truck 15 miles and yeah to uh to uh to pete's house so that's, that's the absolute truth and pete and mark will both to this day verify that they're still alive and of sane mind uh, i uh i believe it there's um there's a guy in particular that i know that was flying a peregrine at one point i believe it was i can't remember is either peregrine or prairie or something anyway um same kind of deal um was trying to track it lost sight of it or whatever and then was you know holding out his window he looks out his window and the thing's falling alongside his, his truck it was that's right. uh, no, yeah no are, falcons are smarter than most falconers that's for sure yeah yeah they're mm -hmm. very smart for sure yeah that merlin though i called her i named i named her caper because i caught her in cape may and and she was just unbelievable. And I'll never have another bird like her. And her than the New Zealand were my two favorite birds ever. Yeah. yeah. So you think that that was your, those two birds were kind of like in that special bird like category that we were talking about earlier? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have one, I had one other bird, which was a passage Tiersel Harris hawk. Uh, but I had him in my later years. Okay. And I had him for seven years. And, um, uh, I gave him to a falconer buddy of mine only because he was boring. I mean, our son lives in Arizona, and so we would spend our winters in Arizona. I was semi-retired or retired, and I could spend three months in Arizona. And that bird, you'd only hawk for five minutes before he caught a quail or a rabbit. And I'm, I'm in the last 20 years, I've been a one-kill-a-day guy. That's it. I know in my younger days I was a game hawk, but not, I grew up. and. Uh, anyhow so i mean that was it i had to, he was boring it would take 
five minutes and you had to go home, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. I somebody else, let him be bored. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of people that probably line up to have that problem of boredom. You yeah. know, I, that's, that's well, boredom because it just was over. You know, <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's, uh, there's I'm talking about falconry now, nothing else. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I, I got you. No, there's, um, there's a couple of, of people though that, like I said, I can think of right off the top of my head that would, that would love to, to have that five minute boring problem as far as their falconry goes for sure. Yeah. But, yeah. uh, but yeah, I mean, I, um, no, that's, that's, that's cool though. I mean, like I said, it's, as far as the the other aspect of things, though, um, before we circle back again, and as far as your veterinary practice, I mean, what have been some of the more, I don't know, like things that you impactful things that you've learned over over time with your veterinary practice and and things like that when it when pertaining to a lot of this stuff. Well, I've had a more diverse practice than 90% of the veterinarians. I started off in a mixed animal practice. We did farm animals, horses, dogs, cats, everything. And then I went into a uh, small animal practice, and I was the only one around doing birds at the time in the area. So I got a lot, I got a lot of birds. And because of that, um, I, got, I, I did the zoo. And uh, the EPA Zoo is a small, under 500 specimen zoo, but it's amazing. It's always ranked one of the top zoos in the country, under 500 specimens. And uh, so I got to see everything from parakeets to pachyderms there. Uh, we had giraffes and bears and all the lions and tigers and jaguars. And we raised polar bears and we raised leopards and, and we raised giraffes. And, and that was very diverse. And also, I did a lot of work on non-game species with uh, game commission so we had an osprey release program we had an otter release program we had a uh, barn owl release program and so between falconry the game commission uh oh i did rehab on everything i mean i rehab birds of course and and uh, every time they get a orphan bear cub or a, a bobcat with a hit by a car and a broken leg they'd bring it to me and i'd fix them up and as best I could, if I could. And uh, so I really, I, I mean, our kids, our kids have had everything you can think of in our house, you know? So I just, I've had, I've just had a wonderful, wonderful career. I just loved every minute of it. I hated, however, being a business owner. I couldn't stand it. They don't, <laughs> teach, they don't teach you how to be a business owner in veterinary school. They only teach you veterinary medicine. So, but anyhow, so, but that's, um, I, I, I've had all kinds of experiences. I don't, I don't know if I can even come up with one off the top of my yeah. head. Yeah. Well, but, as far as, as far as some of the more valuable lessons that you learned though, while you were practicing veterinary medicine, and it doesn't necessarily have to pertain to raptors, I guess, but, but what, uh, what were some of the more, more important things that you felt like you learned, you know, like in the middle of, of, of your practice? Well, I think I think the the thing that I learned and it took me a while to learn it but I did learn it is listen to listen to the owner but verify um, the owners think they know what the problem is whether they're falconers or pet owners or horse owners or farmers it doesn't matter they think they know what the problem is but you have to listen to them you can't brush them off but you have to really 
critically assess what they're telling you. And that's the best. You have to listen, and you can't assess unless you listen. So I guess that's one of the main things I learned. Because the animals can't talk. You know? <laughs> well, you, you hope they don't anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> and when they do, they'd probably lie. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's the whole other. My dog, my dog lies all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have, I have two dachshunds, so I, 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 get, I, get, I get lied to constantly also. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've had one. I, I had one of those. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, I see. You had. Um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm I'm drawing a blank. But from New Jersey, uh, the Doxy breeder. On, oh, Teddy. On, yeah, Teddy Moretz. That was yeah. it. Yeah, because mm -hmm. she was in Jersey. I was in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and she's the one who started that Doxy craze. And of course, I got one. Everybody else did too. <laughs> I, I got one, and I had an old female. Harris Hawk at that time, and uh, boy, that if that doxy didn't get a rabbit up in about oh, 15 20 minutes, that that hawk would go and just fist bumper right on the back and get, make her get going, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, um, some have a little bit more patience with, with, the, <laughs> with the uh, with that than others, that's for sure. Yeah, no, that's funny. I mean, did you and and while we're on the subject of dogs, then I mean, did you run any other dogs regularly? And oh, yeah, yeah, I had I've, I've always had retrievers, pointers, and and uh, that one dachshund that's what I've had, yeah. um. Uh, the last dog I had that uh, died at 15, or I euthanized her at 15 for issues, but she hunted until she was 13, and she was amazing. But it took her five years to get that way, <laughs> and uh, but she was amazing. I've had uh, Labrador retrievers, Golden retrievers, pointers, English pointers, and German short hairs that I hunted with. I never hunted with a beagle. I never felt the need. I used a dachshund for that. You know? mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. I know for me, it's become a, a staple. You know, I, I, I can't imagine hunting without dogs anymore. You know, especially yeah. it's, you know, I mean, I, it, it's, it's good to have a group of friends that you can rely on to help beat for you. But, it, you know, there's, there's going to be times though, where they're not going to be able to. So, right. you right. know, it's nice to have a, a couple of extra people there, you know, or a couple extra animals there, I should say, you know, that'll be more than happy to do it for you. And, and then not only be happy to do it for you, but don't want to stop either. Usually. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know if they're big anywhere else, but in the East here, these, uh, English field trial cockers are a big, big dog. I'm Seth has them. And, um, and uh, the person who started those was this Rod Gerline guy I met, who's been a big influence in my life. I met him in 72 when he called up because he had a sick hawk. And, uh, and uh, anyhow, um, he's the first one who started those, and people saw his dogs and how great they were. And now that's probably the most popular dog for short wings going now in the, in the East. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they're cool dog, um, you know, in the right application and and the right settings and and the right amount of, um, you know, the the size of the the hunting spot and so on and so forth. I mean, I've I've got a couple of friends that that have them as well, and they're they're a nice dog. I mean, I, I like them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I I if I was in a slightly different area, I would probably possibly lean towards that direction as well. But for where I'm at, dachshunds are or pretty much where it's at. I also have two Vizslas of it, but that's, you yeah. know, if people have heard me talk about that, you know, um, yeah. multiple times now, I mean, they're Vizslas. I love, I love them as well, but for where I'm at, 
honestly, Dachshunds are, are really hard to beat. Dachshunds and uh, and like you know Deckers and, and Decker Terriers and stuff like that. So no, I yeah that and that's uh, that's the, the the thing is you have to have the hawk and the dog for the game that you have and the conditions that you have and yep. that's that that shows a level of maturity for you i'll tell you that <laughs> <laughs> well well i mean and sometimes it takes us a minute to get there but uh <laughs> but uh but yeah i've i've you know like i said it's it you i think once again you know when you make decisions like that early on you know enough just enough to be dangerous and then you know as time goes on you're like well i still love these dogs but i obviously didn't make the best decision and you know <laughs> it, it's it's one of those things where instead of continuing to try and fit the uh, square peg in the round hole, sometimes you just have to admit that, well, okay, wasn't the best decision, but I'm not going to make it again. I'll just go this other route now, you know? And, and no, it's just, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. The other thing I, I forgot to mention, and I don't know if it's, a, it's relevant or not. I was lucky enough to, to, I, I, when I, f I first came into practice, I was in mixed animal practice, I told you, but then I went to the small animal practice and there was three other guys in the practice and they were running a three man practice and they were just worked to the bone. And so they added me, but they kept at a three man practice. So, and when I became a partner, which was just a couple of years later, each of us got 13 weeks a year off. Okay, we we ran a three man practice with four guys. So each guy got 13 weeks off. You had to use two of those weeks for continuing education, but the rest of the 11 weeks, you can do whatever you want. So I traveled out west every year for a long time. Um, I got to hawking, you know, at least and, and my uh, fam, my family, I, I'm afraid, well, they like going hawking anyways, my son and my wife and daughter. But anyhow, uh, I'd, I'd go out to out west, Midwest, uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, every year for three or four weeks, and then Arizona, New Mexico for three or four weeks. So uh, besides the rabbit and, and squirrel hawking and pheasant hawking here in Pennsylvania. So I got a... I was lucky enough to be in a practice where they valued time off and I got a chance to do that. And that's not the case with most people in any kind of practice or job work site. Yeah. I know for me, it would be hard to go back to a job where I was working more than three nights or three days a week again, because, yeah. because the flexibility of being able to go hawking or do whatever else I need to do those other three to four days a week is um, it becomes invaluable and you can't really replace that with any kind of money or um anything right. else you know and so yeah no i think there's a lot to be said for that and there's a big reason why a lot of the guys that do um you know pest control or abatement and things like that really you know bust ass you know for most of the summer and stuff to save up enough money to where they don't ever have to work those first three or four months or three or four months of the hawking season and stuff after that and and yeah. um there's a lot to be said for those things. If, if, if this is something that you, that you value for sure. And right. having, having that flexibility where if you wanted to fly something different that you can't fly in your own area, but you can, you know, go out West for a few months and, and be able to, to fly, you know, right. um, you know, a, a long wing or, or something or, or even like a golden Eagle or something that you couldn't be able to fly, you know, out right. East, you know, very practically. And, yeah, I mean, there's no. I, I think that I think that is applicable because there's there's a lot 
yeah, a lot of people that kind of become slaves to their to their you know careers and stuff. So hey, the gold handcuffs they call it. But you know, um, but I uh, I was very fortunate in that um, mine wasn't like a three day week. Mine was I would get a month off three or four times a year. Okay, and as a result. The, the practice, the four of us bought a motorhome and no one guy, none, nobody could use it at the same time because the other guys were always working when you were off. Mm -hmm. So well, I could take the family and go and, and, and uh, in the summertime, we did family things because it wasn't hawking season, but in the spring and fall, and that's, that's what we were doing. That's where we were hawking, you know? in the motorhome and it was a family affair it was nice no that's cool and and it sounds like that was a you're in a group of of a, a in with a group of guys that that were pretty like-minded and and when it comes i mean that's kind of what you have to have sometimes you know whenever you go into business with people and stuff no we were like-minded in that family time meant more to us than money um, uh, cause when you didn't work, you didn't get paid, you got paid on what you did, you know? Sure. So, so, uh, but, but, um, but we couldn't have been more diverse as far as philosophy, religion, uh, uh hobbies. <laughs> yeah. But we had that family orientation and times worth more than money, um, ilk, you know? Sure. Sure. Well, and before we kind of start to you know, wind this conversation down a little bit. Like, I, I want to go back a little bit, though, and, you know, just see if there's any other things that you can, I don't know, think of or, you know, I mean, any kind of other experiences that you had whenever it came to, you know, some of the the early days of a lot of this and, you know, that we didn't touch on or any other trains of thought that we didn't kind of get a chance to go down you know, when it kind of came to, you know, some of the, the early days and, and, you know, the, like, kind of like that true second ish, you know, first leading into second ish generation of, of falconry here in the States. I mean, mm -hmm. is there anything else that, that you want to touch on? One of the differences that once, once the rigs come in, the sponsorship program came in mm -hmm. and that's been something that's been, um, a problem. Uh, a lot of good falconers, um, who are really good at falconry um, are not uh, are not the ones who want to become sponsors. So that's one thing. And the trouble is that a lot of the um, and I, I, this is this is not naming any names. It's not a generalization. But some of the sponsors are pet keepers and so forth. And so they they beget a generation of non, what I call non, I, I, I'm not an elitist. Falconers, I don't care what you fly, but you have to take wild game. That's what you have to do. And um, and uh, there's a lot of people who sponsor people who don't do that, and that's not good. And there's a lot of good falconers who do do that or aren't willing to sponsor somebody, and that bothers me too. And to that end, I've had in my entire life, I've had two people I sponsored only because the first one, um, I had a rule. And the rule is you had to come hawking with me for a year before I would sponsor you the next year. And only two of them did it. And the next year I sponsored this guy and he was phenomenal, phenomenal, a way, way better falconer than me. And do you know who Steve Martin is? 
Um, yeah, I, I know the name. Okay, yeah. he's the, the bird guy at Disney and all that stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. great, great falconer. Well, well, this guy Rob Rob Jules is his name was my apprentice, and he is now um, he lives in Florida and he's now uh, Steve's main main trainer, and he trains his trainers. So this guy could train dogs, horses, falcons. It doesn't matter. He could train anything. He had what I call it. He just had it. He gets it. And then the other one. Uh, was a falconer who showed up to go hawking the fear. So I said I would sponsor her the next year. But, and I helped her catch her first red tail. And I took her to the rabbit fields where I knew there was rabbits and I knew she'd be successful. But then I went away for the winter and I'd come back for the whole winter. And I said, well, how many, did, did you catch any rabbits? Nope, never caught a rabbit the whole time you were gone. I said, oh, man, that's terrible. So I made her get rid of that bird. And it was a good bird because I took her out like five or six times, and she caught a rabbit every time with that bird. It was a great bird. And uh, and I uh, I said, you got to get rid of that bird because you won't learn anything by interviewing that bird. And so she reluctantly did. And she caught her own. I admit she caught her own bird, and but she never caught a thing with it. And then she wanted me to... Um, uh, say I would raise it to general. And I said, no, not until you start catching game. I'm not going to do it. And so that was probably 20 years ago. And I still get a Christmas card from her every year saying, for your forever apprentice. apprentice. <laughs> and it's not because she's a woman. It could have been a guy. I, this is not a, a, a male, female thing. She just, if you didn't take her by the hand, she didn't do it. Mm. And, you know, so that was it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do understand what you're, what you're saying. And, and I know there is a, a very wide varying of opinions as far as that kind of stuff goes, but I, I do agree that there's a very mixed bag as far as, you know, just, uh, yeah, what the standards are, you know, uh, from one person to the other. I think, I think the, the main thing you have to, when you, when deciding whether to sponsor someone, is what their level of desire is to do it. And by requiring that they go hawking with me before I, res- before I sponsor them, I think is reasonable. It's not unreasonable. They, right, they, wanna, they don't want to spend the time coming hawking with me, you know, maybe once or twice a year instead of, instead of you know, you don't have to come every day, but if I, I, would, if I go on the weekends, you can get a weekend off to do it. So, so I don't think that's an unreasonable requirement. I really don't. No. No, and I, and that's probably part of the reason that I don't know if it'll it'll probably be a long time before I'd ever consider sponsoring anybody because of a lot of those said requirements too. Like I wouldn't require anything of anybody that I didn't have to go through myself. And um, you know, I I did that exact same thing. I I uh, you know uh, got out with the with the group of guys here for a whole year, and before I felt like I I earned my my sponsorship and then same deal. I mean, it's getting out at least, at least three to four times a week Mm -hmm. and um, so on and so forth. And, and the expectations of of me, I felt were, I mean, they were kind of high, but at the same time they were, that's the way it should be. Sure. No, I agree. Yeah. And, and so it's whenever like right now I can't dedicate the same level of time commitment to someone that I would expect 
them to have. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't guarantee that uh, all the times that, that I can get out with somebody and take somebody under my wing are going to be the same times that I have available. So, I mean, like it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, well, you know, so I'm just not going to sponsor anybody for a while. <laughs> and it's not because I don't necessarily want to ever sponsor somebody, but you know, I, 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 I hate hypocrisy and I'm not going to f- be hypocritical in, in my expectations of somebody else whenever, no, you know, no. yeah, no, you, 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 you can't ask them to do more than you're willing to do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, but I don't know. I personally, I, I think kind of a, I don't know, after, after being in South Africa and seeing how their system works out there and stuff, I, I think some degree of like a hybridization between our system and theirs would, would probably be kind of neat, but I don't really know the perfect way to go about it. You know, it's, uh, yeah. No, I know. That's each individual. You know how much time you have to give, and you know how much uh, information you have to put forward, and and yeah, and or at least yeah. I don't. I don't know. It's a, it's a problem. Uh, getting a sponsor is a problem, and uh, but uh, if you want the sport to continue, we need we need people to join. You know. Sure. Well, yeah. and and um, I mean, was there a, a massive amount of pushback that you saw whenever those regs were introduced, or or did you did everybody kind of somewhat most mostly agree that that it was for the best? No, I agree. I agree that that uh, because but the problem is, in order to be a sponsor, all you have to do is be a general falconer, and I'm I'm not saying you should. What I'm saying is the requirement to be a general falconer is possess a bird for two years. That's what it is. Yeah. Okay, and um, and so and so I think that we still have. Uh, my problem is the good good falconers that I know, for some reason or other, they just. Yeah, I don't have time for a falcon. I'd rather be hawking and blah, 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 blah. Okay. And the people who are, uh, you know, uh, walk around in the medieval fair with a falcon on their fist are the ones that are sponsoring people. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, if I offended somebody, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and then that's the thing too, is, I mean, there are some people that are actually that do actually hawk and, and actually do oh, actively, yeah. actively hunt that they're in those situations. No, but, right. <laughs> but once again, not, not everyone is, is, is the same in their approach with things. So. Right, right. But if they're doing those, both those things, you probably don't have time to sponsor somebody. <laughs> well, that's, and, and there, there you go. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a double edged sword all the way around, but, yeah. uh, but, well, you can cut me off whenever you want to. I've, I've had, but I, I just it came into my brain. You said about the thing. I couldn't remember the second thing that was really. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was that same Merlin. Uh, Caper, she, so many Merlins have been killed by Cooper's Hawks here. I mean, Falconer's Merlins. Oh, okay? yeah. And I've had it happen to me. I mean, in fact, this bird Caper was killed by a Cooper's Hawk. Okay. Uh, after her fourth, fifth season, something like that. Anyhow, but that bird, I, I used to go to a pheasant farm because they were loaded with starlings there, just loaded with starlings with the Merlin. Of course, when you've got starlings, you've got Cooper's Hawks, okay? And I knew the risks, but anyhow, um, I, was, I was there one day flying starlings, and this Cooper's Hawk came out, and this Merlin just started bombing that cooper sock it just kept bombing it bombing it bombing it and it forced it actually into there was a building with a fence a, a, a you know a, a pheasant a fence keeping the pheasants in an enclosure and it that cooper sock it bombed that cooper sock right into the corner to the point where i went over and picked up the cooper sock 
Okay. And so I come home with, and I said, Jan, my wife, I said, look what caper caught today. And it was the immature female Cooper's hawk. <laughs> so I had the exact opposite with her, but she ended up getting killed by Cooper's hawk because she was too bold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is bold. Yeah. That yep. is bold. Yeah. Anybody that's flown Merlins or Kestrels eventually has a Cooper's hawk experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah unfortunately. And Coopers are, Coopers are one of my favorite birds too. I mean, they, they're the most versatile, vicious things in the world. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they still re remain an enigma to, to, to a lot of people, including myself, but uh, yeah. that's, that's a whole other conversation in and of itself there too. But uh, yeah. Well, my wife says, when I have one, I act like one. So I don't, I don't get one very often. <laughs> Any more that I don't have a dog, I don't get one at all. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, how many? It was so out of curiosity. Then how many coops have you flown? And uh, was it more passenger? Well, all, all passage, all passage, and probably half a dozen. And I had one good one, a couple fair, and come that were untrainable. Yeah. 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 There's, it seems like, I don't know, like there's some guys that, that feel like that, that it doesn't really, if you, if your approach is right, then, then none of them are untrainable. And then of course there's, there's other guys that are like myself that think, well, I think if you just got lucky into like the 10% of the, of the ones that really are trainable, but, That's right. uh, but right. <laughs> no, I, I think, yeah, no. And the one, the one good one I did have, um, I never intermuted Cooper's Hawk because I heard they were a pain in the ass to intermute. And so I, I was, I took a trip to the Eastern shore in the winter to hunt woodcock. And I, and I, and we were successful. We caught some woodcock and with another good falconer out there, Paul Burns and, and, uh, Billy Waterman. And, uh, anyhow, I said, well, I'm not going to immune this thing. I let it go. And I shouldn't have, because that thing caught quail and pheasants and rabbits and, and woodcock. And I should, I should have kept her, but I didn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the thing is though, is, is, yeah, I don't know. Like if you do have a, a bird that is truly exceptional, I can, I can see where the, the, the temptations lie, you know, but, uh, and you know, I mean, I, the whole intermewing thing, you know, all the power to people if they've got a good bird and want to keep it or whatever. But that is another experience the following year, or whatever that you're not learning. Oh something. yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right. Ain't ain't no ain't no uh, assurance you're going to get the same bird out that you put in that molting muse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, I mean. Uh, is there is there any other thoughts that uh, I, I want to pick your brain as much as possible here? But I mean, I you know I'm like I said, it's a uh, it's one of those things where I mean I know that you've been doing this for so long, and and I don't yeah. know when we'll get the opportunity to do this again. So I mean, if yeah. there's any other um, things that that you have to share, feel free. This is my heartbreak is that um, uh, this year is the first year in over fifty years uh, that I haven't had a bird. And, uh, well, I did have a bird and then I had a bird, I, um, Seth, I, I had a Merlin and Seth called me and, and he said, Hey, I got this female, female Coopers. If you'd like it, I've been trying to catch a female Coopers at home and I didn't catch one. And I, I got a Merlin from Cape May and I was driving home with this Merlin when Seth called me and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I got five days. I'll take them both. Well, hell, the Cooper's Hawk was nicer than the Merlin. And Merlin was nice, but the Cooper's Hawk was one of the 
nicest Cooper's talk I've had. So I let the Merlin go. And then I got the diagnosis that my cancer had come back and I had to spend three days a week at the Cleveland Clinic and blah, blah, blah. So I let her go. So this is the first season I haven't hocked since 1972, the first season. Mm -hmm. So I, but anyhow, I, my plans are to, to at least be in remission enough that I'm going to get a Merlin in the fall and, and, uh, and fly next year. Well, good. I mean, it's good to have goals and, and, um, you know, always gotta be working towards something, you know, well, I'm going sure. to tell you the ingredients of happiness and I'm, I hate to be a philosopher, but I'm going to be, um, <laughs> go for it. Then we'll, we'll consider this your, your piece of advice for, for right. people, you know, there's three key ingredients to happiness and they are someone to love something to do and something to look forward to. That's it. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's very, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's cut and dry, but it's very intuitive. You know, I, I think, um, I think that's a good point, especially that I think there's a lot of people that would be much happier if they could just find some degree of a purpose. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I, I'm for, I'm, I'm, I feel fortunate for you anyway, that, that, you know, like I said, you've, you've had a, a lifelong well, multi-purpose. I mean, you you've had your veterinary practice, you've had, you know, your falconry, and you know, I mean, like I said, you your family and and everything else. So, I mean, it's it sounds like if nothing else, you've lived a pretty fulfilling oh, life. Oh, the best! I'm the oldest of thirteen kids, and um, oh wow, <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, farm people, you know, it's the way it was back then, mm -hmm. and uh, and I I couldn't. Have I couldn't have picked a better life. I wouldn't change one single thing. Very cool. Very cool. Oh, and, and pertaining to falconry, I do want to go ahead and since since you know we're kind of wrapping this up, uh, what other piece of advice as far as just falconry related would you would you have to share with people? Well, the, the, another colleague of mine who's passed away, and I'm so sad, he's missing Tim Kimmel. He was uh, president of the Pennsylvania Club after me and president of NAF after me. And his his advice to me, which I never forgot, is persistence pays off. He, if you, if you go out and you're just frustrated because you can't find any game or the weather's not cooperative, it's too windy, and just be persistent, it's going to pay off. Yeah. What he taught me. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand with the whole, um, you know, you're not going to catch anything from your couch type of, <laughs> That's you know, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. type of mentality. So, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, all right. Well, you know, you can, like I said, I, I, I feel like that, that I could probably keep poking, prodding and, and probing, you know, for, for more information from you, you know, for, for a decent amount of time here. Maybe we'll get a chance at some point to do another one of these in person. It would be, it would be even, even cooler, I think. But, um, but I mean, unless you have, you know, any other last, last things that you can think of to share. Um, no, I think I've, I've covered everything that's in this feeble mind of mine. So we're all set. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, like I said, thank you. And, you know, I, I know you've got, always you know some stuff going on and and um you know have a, a bunch of other obligations that you usually have to meet every week so appreciate you um you know like i said taking this well close to hour and a half now to uh yeah. to, to talk and uh and and share about your life so i mean i, I appreciate you 
Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And then, you know, it's my passion, but I'm not a zealot, I don't think, as falconry. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of these guys who moves to Hobunk, Nebraska because the chickens are there. I, you know. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a very important aspect of your life, but it's not all of your life. No, that's right. It's just one piece and it's a big piece, but there's other pieces that are just as big, if not bigger. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, like I said, we'll we'll talk a little bit more here in a minute, but I'm going to go ahead and if you're good with it, then I'm I'm good with calling this good and we'll um hopefully do another one of these some other time in person. Well, thank you. I'm good with it. Thank you. You're you're a very nice gentleman and uh I hope we do meet in person sometime. Strong arm Seth and to to host in another little get together or something and there you go. make yeah. every, make him feed us all like barbecue and stuff and again. Yeah. Uh, Great. <laughs> yeah. All right. Appreciate you, Ken. Okay, John, thank you so much. Mm.